This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Wow, thank you Tim for just ministering to us and speaking to, to all of us. Today I just admit to you if I could just open my heart um, I'm frustrated today. In fact, I'm, I'm very, very frustrated. And, and the main cause of my frustration is not COVID, even though quarantines and distancing, they've, they've made life so complicated. My frustration also, I, I think you'll be happy to know, is not you. Uh, it's not this church. It's not... Um, my job as pastor of this church, even though there are frustrating aspects and even frustrating people in every church, sorry if that offends you, um, but rather the cause of my frustration is religion. And my frustration today is not even as a result of religions in faraway country countries such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, I'm frustrated with the religion that all of us would call our religion. If someone would ask us, what is your religious preference? We would all answer the same thing. We would say, well, our religion is Christianity. And taking this a bit further, the majority of my frustration stems from what we have done to Christianity. It stems from the fact that we've cut and pasted, added and deleted We've created a religion that that fits us, a a religion that we typically back with statements such as, well, this is just kind of what I think. This is the way I see this. And the result of that is that our Christian religion has become complex, has become a complicated belief system that is adjustable, it's adaptable, it varies from person to person, and the focus is is on our preferences, such as, well, which Bible translation should we use? Should we use the 1611 King James Version, or is it okay to use what we're doing today, the 1978 New International Version? Or in our religious preferences, we also focus on the style of music, or even how to baptize. I mean, does water in this heated baptistry back here is, is that holy enough? I, I mean, some churches believe that it needs to be an outside natural body of water, and some feel like it needs to be a body of water that's actually flowing, like a stream or a river, because the Jordan River was where Jesus was baptized. It was flowing water, which is, incidentally, I've baptized quite a few people there in the Jordan River, and it was muddy, muddy water. If you believe that water cleanses your sins, why, you better think again there, but So that has been the focus. Something else I've noticed about the religion that we've created is that normally has a pinch of doctrine. A recipe will sometimes call for a pinch of salt. Not not too much, just a little bit. And so does our religion call for just a little pinch of, of doctrine. And we typically bring in part of the doctrine that we were raised with. And for example, our church, the Church of God Holiness here, has roots that go back to John Wesley, and we call ourselves Wesleyans. 
Actually, we would officially call ourselves Wesleyan Arminian. Our theological position would be a position that blends concepts from Jacobus Arminius and, and, and John Wesley, and we would believe in a work of grace where we're filled with the Spirit of God, which sometimes referred to as sanctification or holiness. But then other churches would have roots that would go back to not John Wesley, but John Calvin. They would call themselves Calvinists, and, and they would follow sometimes five-point Calvinism, sometimes three-point Calvinism. And under Calvinism, most would believe in what we've come to refer to as once saved, always saved. And then we can't forget the Pentecostal movement, where an important part of their doctrine is speaking in unknown tongues. And so most of the time, we will cut and paste some of the doctrinal aspects that, that we're okay with. But, but then I found out that we're also prone to say, well, you know, I, I don't quite agree with that part of our doctrine. I've never seen it that way. And so we kind of hit delete. We delete that from our religion. And then there's the matter of dress and religion. And you have some people that have very strict dress codes, which honestly, we've gotten away from biblical modesty. And I think we need to pay more attention to biblical principles of dressing modestly. But anyway, some people will say, well, okay, ladies should only wear dresses and, uh, or, or skirts and men should stick to pants and in our country, that sounds good. But if you go to the country of Myanmar, formerly the country of Burma, in that country, the men wear skirts. And as a whole, and I've been there several times, but when I visit a country, typically as much as possible, I try to fit into their culture. But when I have visited Myanmar different times, even though I've always felt pretty secure in my manhood, I... I just couldn't switch out my trousers for a skirt. <laughs> Therefore, in Myanmar, they're in Myanmar. And, and plus, I knew that with social media, it would end up where? Up there. <laughs> but all about to say that we've fashioned, we've, we've personalized Christianity into a religion that fits our preferences. Which means that your version of Christian, the Christian religion, even though we claim to serve the same Savior, we, we claim to follow the same Bible, yet many times our Christianity varies greatly from person to person. And again, in our, in our context as Americans, for, for, for people that like choices and options, I remember back when we came, when we came back from the mission field, and uh, we went to Walmart to get some toothpaste. We just wanted toothpaste. And we, we found an aisle that was like 50 yards long of all of the different kinds of toothpaste. I was used to, in, in, in the, country, the, the context of our country there, where we lived, you would go and get Colgate. That was it. You went and got toothpaste. It was easy. You grabbed Colgate. And here, oh my word, and it was so stressful. All of the options. Toothpaste. We Americans like, like options. We, uh, we like choices. And so for us, a religion that's adjustable, that has choices and options, it sounds good. But here's what takes place when we allow that to happen. All of a sudden, our belief system loses authority. Because the only backing that our belief system has is something very flimsy called opinion. 
my opinion, your opinion, I think this. Not to mention then the religion turns into something so complicated and not only do we lose the authority of the gospel, but we lose the simplicity of the gospel. Some of you as a child growing up, you remember maybe as a grandmother, maybe a grandfather or a parent or another relative that in your mind is, is still at the list, uh, top of the list of the most godly people you ever knew. But as you look back on them, do you remember the simple faith that they had? It wasn't that they were simple, far from it, but, but their faith had a simplicity that was so attractive. And it, it was a faith that wasn't based on a bunch of opinions or traditions. It, it was a faith that was based on a living relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, they loved Jesus. They, they loved the Bible. They loved going to church. They loved worshiping the Lord. And if you would have tried to engage them in a debate over those things that we debate today, and, you know, why this and why that, and, well, I prefer this instead of that, and why did they do that at church and all that, they would have had a lost look on their face because their focus was on Jesus. But today, as we've created our own version of Christianity, things have gotten so complicated, and, and we've lost the authority of the gospel, and we've lost the simplicity of the gospel. Now, that long monologue takes us up to where we're headed. With God's help, today we're launching a new sermon series that I've entitled Deconvert. And um, for the next couple of Sundays or so, my goal is this. My goal is for all of us to deconvert and to lose our religion. And I know that sounds like grounds for my being terminated from this church, but before the church board would convene and deliberate on this, I would ask them and you to give me about 30 minutes this morning before you write me off as another preacher that got off track. Now let's, let's explore God's Word. To propel us into our study, let's take a quick walk down history lane. If you've studied history, and you all have, and if you actually paid attention to what you studied, which you didn't, if you're like me, but the history of religion is ugly. The history of religion is embarrassing. The history of religion is stained with the shedding of human blood. In fact, when you look at all of the evil that's been done around the world, a lot of it has been done under the umbrella of religion. And if you look at religion and the actions of religious people around the world, there are plenty of reasons to justify getting rid of religion entirely. Just a few examples here. If you go back to the Crusades, which was a religious war that was fought in the 11 to 1200s, what Christians did to Muslims in the name of religion was horrible. Or if you go back to the years that we refer to as the Spanish Inquisition in the 15, 16, 1700s and part of the 1800s, under the guise of religion, people were threatened and asked to recant things that actually lined up with the Bible. And if they refused, they were tortured and many were burned at the stake. To show how crazy this was, during this period of time, you could even be arrested for taking communion the wrong way. And then in Ireland, and I remember this, 
1968 to the 1990s, you had the Protestants and the Catholics, all under the banner of Christianity, warring against each other in a bloody conflict, uh, conflict called the Troubles. Some of you would remember that. And then today, outside of Christianity, you have different sects of, of Islam, Sunni Muslims uh, going up against Shiite Muslims, setting off car bombs and blowing themselves up, not to mention the battle with some Muslims warring against Jews and Christians. And so again, I know this sounds really awful, but we could almost make the case that religion has taken away more than what it's added. It's brought more negative into the world than positive. And instead of alleviating suffering, it has compounded it. Instead of bringing peace, too many times religion has brought conflict. And bringing it closer to home, probably every one of us has had a personal, has a personal story, or at least we know somebody that had a bad experience in church. A church like this one, where under the guise of religion, under the guise of love and grace and, and mercy and peace, terrible things were done. People were treated in horrible ways, and children suffered things that were just too graphic to talk about. And so, frankly, it's easy to build a case against religion. In fact, our lesson will highlight this as we look at an account that took place shortly after Christ ascended from earth to heaven. It's about a story, it's a story about a man who deconverted from religion. And at that time, his particular religion was Judaism. But one day on the road to Damascus, he literally saw the light and the frustration and the emptiness of religion that had caused him to become cruel and, and mean and had caused his conscience to become clouded. On that day, when he saw the light, he deconverted from his religion which then became the starting point for a genuine connection and relationship with the God of the universe that goes beyond any religious system that tells you when to stand up and when to sit down and what to wear and what Bible translation to use. What he found after deconverting went far beyond those things. He found peace with God. To begin his story, let's read from a document that was written around 50 AD, 55, just a few years after the time of Christ. Many of you already know the story. All of you know the man. His name was Saul, who became Paul and eventually the Apostle Paul. Now, Acts chapter 26, verse 9 is where we will pick up our scripture in a moment, but Whenever we get to our scripture, Paul had already deconverted from religion. He had become a follower of Jesus. And at that time, they didn't call them Christians. They called them followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But what leads up to our scripture is that Paul, after, after he deconverted from the religion that he was so passionate about, he became equally passionate about following Jesus. And so one day, in his excitement, he went to the temple in Jerusalem to teach and preach. And in his message that day, he let the congregation know that he had deconverted and, and he had given up his religion and chosen to follow Jesus. Well, the religious Jews that believed like he used to, they were incensed and they couldn't fathom how this man that had been a leader in their religion could actually deconvert and teach against it now. That blew their minds. Well, as you can imagine, that caused a big stir. And after a little bit, they'd had enough. And they came up out of their seats. And a mob spirit developed. You can imagine that happening here. 
People so upset at the preacher, coming up out of the seats, a mob spirit developing, and they threw Paul out of the synagogue. Well, that chaos got the Romans involved. Anytime there was any type of violence or writing, the Romans were kind of like the National Guard. They would be called in to try to restore order. And as the Roman soldiers came to the scene of the mob, they didn't know Paul's background. They thought Paul was an Egyptian that had been causing problems. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 20, uh, 21. And, and I was curious on this Egyptian that, you know, doesn't say much in, 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 in the book of Acts about him. So I, I went to the historian Josephus and, and I started reading his works. And, and, and what he said is that, Evidently, in and around Jerusalem were some people that we would probably call no good, low-life troublemakers. And they were independently creating havoc, committing acts of crime, stealing, plundering. Well, according to Josephus, this Egyptian came along and appealed to these troublemakers. And about 4,000 of these no good, low-life troublemakers, they gathered around this Egyptian. He became their leader. And it's interesting, the NIV refers to these people, these 4,000 people as terrorists, they decided to follow this Egyptian. So when there was all of this commotion and Paul was thrown out of the synagogue, the Romans thought, we finally get a chance to nab this Egyptian troublemaker. And so the Bible says that they bound him with two chains. Well, about that time, Paul says, uh, by the way, I'm not Egyptian I'm a Roman citizen. And the Roman soldiers are like, oh, we just messed up. We, we've arrested a Roman citizen and bound him with chains, which was a big no-no, because if you were a Roman citizen, you had rights. And you were not supposed to be treated like a common Jew or a common Samaritan. And so these Roman soldiers are like, man, what do we do now? We're in deep weeds. We bound him with chains. So they take him to the king of the area whose name was Agrippa. King Agrippa. And you can look up King Agrippa in your history books. And I actually was just kind of reading about this. King Agrippa was the grandson of Herod who sent the soldiers in to Bethlehem to kill the babies after Jesus was born. King Agrippa was also the one who imprisoned Peter and the one who killed James. And, and, and some interesting trivia here that I, I learned this past week. Um, his son, Agrippa's son, who they refer to as Agrippa II, I guess we'd call him Junior. Interesting trivia, he became the last of the Herodian dynasty. You, you have all of these Herods. And so King Agrippa's son, Agrippa II, became the last of the Herodian dynasty. Just a little bit of trivia there. But anyway, Paul goes in before King Agrippa, and, and, and Agrippa gathers some of his other rulers and friends and says, Paul, tell us your story. And, and Paul said, thanks for asking. Thanks for letting me do that. And he loved to tell about his deconversion where he left religion behind. So Paul says, here's my story. Once upon a time, I was a really, really good, devout law-keeping, tithe-paying, festival-observing, festival tradition-following religious Jew. 
Uh, Paul even went into detail about the religious school he went to and who his professor of religion was, who happened to be Gamaliel, the leading religious expert of the day. And so Paul tells King Agrippa and some of his friends the account that led him to deconvert from religion. And finally, we're ready to pick up our lesson. Paul is talking to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 9. I too was convinced. Now catch that word, convinced. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the reason I pointed out the word convinced is that Paul, as he took a strong and cruel stand against the followers of Jesus, he truly believed, listen, he truly believed in his conscience that he was doing the right thing. He felt that is what God wanted him to do. Which leads me to say this, you can't always trust your conscience. How many times have we said, well, you've said this, let your conscience be your guide. Pardon me, but that's horrible advice. Unless your conscience is trained and following the Bible. You know, don't let your conscience be your guide because the Bible talks about a hardened conscience, a seared conscience. Let your conscience be your guide? No. Better advice, let the Word be your guide. Let the Word be your guide. Verse 10, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So Paul's goal was not just to persecute followers of Jesus, not to just put them in prison. His goal was to kill them. He believed God was saying, oh, oh, Paul, you put one to death. Good job, buddy. Now go kill some more. It was almost like a religious conviction. Kill people that followed Jesus. Verse 11, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. We talk about church hoppers. Paul was synagogue hopping. His goal was to find and persecute those who were following Jesus. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in Judaism, blasphemy was just simple disrespect towards traditions or objects that they considered sacred. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So after synagogue hopping in Jerusalem, he went to the chief priests and said, hey, I need your blessing. I want your permission to go to these other cities and arrest and persecute people who are followers of Jesus. Paul was as sincere and committed to his religion as anybody ever was. But don't ever think that sincerity will take you to heaven. You can be totally sincere in your beliefs, but sincerely lost. And on your way to hell. Sincerity in itself has no redemptive value in itself. Verse 12, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what does that mean? And the translation that I was raised with, the King James Version, said it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. 
So I went this week, I went to the original Greek language just to make sure I understood what was being said here. The word goad in the original Greek text referred to a long stick with a pointed piece of metal at the end of it. And they would use this to poke or to prod animals when they were trying to move them. Today, uh, if you're a cattle farmer, uh, to encourage cows to move, you use what is hot shot. And kind of like a little taser, I guess. I don't know. Um, little battery-powered device that gives a little shock to the animal and gets their attention. Well, 2,000 years ago, the hot shot was a goad, a stick with a sharp metal point on the end of it. And, and a goad could actually be a formidable weapon. In, in Judges chapter 3, verse 31, you may want to look this up, it refers to a man named Shamgar. And it says that Shamgar went up against the Philistines with a goad as his only weapon. The Bible says that he struck down 600 Philistines with this ox goad. Pretty formidable weapon. But anyway, to kick against the goad basically meant you were fighting a losing battle because the sharp point would win every time. Verse 15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? Paul thought he knew who God was. But as he's giving his testimony, he tells King Agrippa, I didn't really know God. What I thought I knew of God was so wrong. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. And, and, and as we come to this, we're reaching kind of the crux of this scripture, you know, we've spent all of our time this morning like a mountain climber and exerting energy, effort, time to arrive at the summit. We're almost to the summit. And there are four super important things that I want to point out that God told Paul. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them. And here's the first thing, to open their eyes. Paul, Paul is saying, King Agrippa, God sent me on a mission, number one, to help open the eyes of not only my own people, the Jews, but also the eyes of people whose skin is red and yellow, black and white, because they're all precious in his sight. And can I give you my opinion? This is my opinion only. You can take it or leave it, probably leave it. But what, what was God really saying in this phrase to open their eyes? I wonder if God was telling Paul, you know, Paul, you were so blind. You were looking for me in the wrong places. You were looking for me in traditions and systems and feasts and festivals. Paul, you were looking for me in religion. And I think God was saying, Paul, you've been there. You've done that. You were blind. You were looking for God in the wrong places. Um, you're uniquely qualified to go help open people's eyes so they can lose their religion and find a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Paul continues on with the second part of the mission. Open blind eyes and turn them from darkness to light. So, so God was saying that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't care how religious you are, how sincere you are, how committed you are to your religion, you are still in darkness. Here's the third part of the mission, to turn them from the power of Satan to God. Now, whenever this kind of settled in on me this week, whenever it just kind of hit me, it was, I realized this is such a powerful phrase because 
This lets us know that, are you ready? Satan uses religion to advance his cause. Because God commissioned Paul to go to whom? His people that were super religious. And God said, go to these people who are religious. They think they're super spiritual. Help turn them from Satan to God. Religion without Jesus is a tool of Satan. That's why we have to be so careful as a church. We have to be so careful to make sure that what we stand for as a church and what we promote as a church and what we're doing here on Sunday morning and and Wednesday evening is not just religion without Jesus. But there's one more thing in in Paul's mission, and this this is huge. This is the summit so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. He's talking to King Agrippa and his buddies. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, which brings us all to level ground. The common denominator within us all is that we, all of us, 100% of us, have sinned. The common denominator is not our music. You know, some churches have worshipped this morning with a bongo drum that's kind of where I want to be other churches have worshipped with pipe organs and I'd just as soon not be there uh, music is not our common denominator our common denominator is not our dress I mean look around at each other Our common denominator is not the translation of the Bible we prefer. It's not our church traditions. It's not even how we pray. Some churches, when they pray, they stand. Other churches, when they pray, they kneel. In fact, some churches, it's kind of cool. On the backs of the pews, they've got these little kneelers. Anybody ever see a church like that? Kind of, it's easy to kneel there. Some churches, when they pray, they lift their hands. Some murmur things we don't understand. Some churches are quiet as a mouse. Others are loud, like ours. Some churches baptize by immersion. Others sprinkle or pour. Some take communion every Sunday. Others, in fact, this is the church I grew up in after we returned back from the mission field as a child. My parents were missionaries. When we returned back, we went to a Quaker church. And you know what they believe? They believe that the sacraments, baptism, communion, those sacraments were nailed to the cross. So they don't partake of communion. They don't believe in water baptism. Um, our, our, Our traditions and practices vary. But the common denominator for every human being on the globe is that we've messed up, we've sinned, we've fallen short of God's standard. We need forgiveness. And and just as forgiveness is the restorer of your estranged relationship with your husband or your wife or or your parent or child or boss or employee and neighbor or even your deepest enemy, Paul is saying that forgiveness is also the restorer and the starting point, not as a recommitment to religion, rather as a kindling or a rekindling of our relationship with God. And religion that doesn't have at the epicenter intimacy with God through forgiveness of sins will always be empty and frustrating. The central part of the message of Jesus is forgiveness. That's how you find God. 
That's where it all begins. Forgiveness through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. So as we uh, wrap things up today, let me just kind of throw out some, uh, some questions for you to consider this week. I, I'm, not, I'm not accusing, just questions for reflection for, for me and for you. Could it be that some of us might be sincere in what we believe, but as lost as Paul was before his experience on the road to Damascus? Could it be that we might be following our conscience, but our conscience doesn't really match up to the Word? Could it be that our conversion might be a conversion to religion or to church or to particular dogma, doctrine, but we really don't have an active and living relationship with Jesus Christ? Could it be that a true relationship with Jesus Christ is not so much worrying about which translation of the Bible to use or why we sing hymns or we don't sing hymns or why there's so much suffering in the world? Could it be that perhaps we focused way too much on those things and and in so doing maybe lost that intimacy with Jesus Christ? And so the, the whole premise of our series for the next couple of weeks is that maybe what we need to do is deconvert from religion. We need to lose our religion. And we need to find Jesus. We need to find Jesus through the authority and the simplicity of his gospel. Now before we pray, I want to close with a scripture that I read in my devotions this past Wednesday. And You know, I've told you different times, and this is the first year I've done this, but for my Bible reading, my devotions, I'm, I'm reading Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. And um, and as I read my devotions this past Wednesday, this scripture just jumped out at me. And uh, I, uh, I asked Barb if she would print this out on a card, put this in your bulletin. So would you go ahead and grab this and just get it in front of you and and I want to just kind of um, just quietly read this scripture that so spoke to me this week. It's what Isaiah said in chapter 1, verse 13 from the message paraphrase. It says this, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbath, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. Then listen, I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. While you go right on sinning, when you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or how loud or how often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. And then we go into a series of six succinct instructions. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. 
stand up for the homeless, go to bat for the defenseless. And I know sometimes we've taken those last six things and we say, well, that's the social gospel, you know, and but those are instructions for us. And as I read that, it was like, oh, my word, so convicting that, you know, we can sometimes get into our religious mode. And as the scripture says, we're religious, but we're sinning. We're religious, but we're not fulfilling these things here. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this next week. Would you take this card, put it in a prominent place? If you read the Bible, uh, the book, why don't you put it in as a bookmark and read it daily and pray over it. Or if you read uh, your Bible digitally, put it someplace, put it on a mirror, on the refrigerator, desk at work, whatever. And, and I pray that by the end of this series that we will all have done away with religion, but in the process found Jesus. Can we pray together? Oh, Lord, I, would you just forgive us for those times that we've been so committed to religion? We've been committed to things and stuff and traditions and maybe even a church building, but God, there hasn't been the intimacy with Jesus. And Father, I just pray that, I pray that over the coming weeks that we would begin to understand intimacy with Jesus. Lord, we know that religion without Jesus is, it's mean. It's ugly. Lord, I pray that this week we would discover Jesus in a new way, in such a meaningful way. God, I pray that we would be different. As the scripture says, Lord, that we would just uh, say no to wrong. We would learn to do good. Or that we would work for justice. Or those down and outers in our community, that we would help them. Or those who are homeless, that we would stand up for them. Lord, those who are defenseless. Lord, whether those that refers to those in the womb or those that have no voice because we've squashed their voice, I pray, Father, that you would help us to go to bat for the defenseless. God, thank you for your word. Just sanctify this truth to us. Lord, for what you do in our lives, we will thank you. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, you can't leave here without getting your assignment for next week. Um, I'm going to ask you, if you would, uh, in preparation for our lesson next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll be studying Acts chapter 17. And so if you would just go ahead and write that down and uh, become familiar with our passage. And that way, if I don't do a very good job, you've at least gotten the lesson from reading and studying it. You're dismissed. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.